Okay, if you would get out your Bible, if you turn to John 12, we'll, we'll begin with prayer here, but we'll get to our spot to begin with. Am I too loud? I'm going to blow you guys away. Okay. John 12, we're going to look at the first eight verses, okay? Before we do, we'll pray, um, because sinners in the pulpit require spirit in the church, right? So uh, we, we can really, it really, really is true, we can do nothing. Um, when we go to work each day or when we, when we raise our children each day, we have no power to do anything. Anything. If anything successful happens, it's because the grace of God was present. And it just gets worse and worse as you get closer to ministry, I would say. So, so when we're actually attempting to try and make disciples here through, through sermon and to worship the Lord and please Him, you, you might as well be trying to swallow the sea in one gulp. You might as well be trying to lift up the city hall with your two hands. We cannot do it. We have no hope. And I would say the only way forward is to begin by just acknowledging hopelessness. And so I'm going to pray now. And I really want you to pray with me. This is not a token opening prayer. And I'm sure you don't have token prayers in this church because I, I have a lot of esteem for this church. But this isn't token. This is, we're going to, we're going to plead with God now. Will you please come is, is our prayer to help us. Okay. So pray with me. Let, let's ask God to help. <clears throat> Lord, I'm <clears throat> not not going to pretend um, as if I had it together or as if I had a right to preach or um, as if I had in myself uh, what I need to, to do this work. We are not going to pretend together um, as if we had it all together have the resources within ourselves to to do uh, what pleases you. I'm going to confess my sin to start, Lord, and just admit that uh, you know who and what I am. You're not. You're not deceived. Um, no matter what anybody thinks, you know uh, the wretchedness of, of my heart. And so, God, we, we admit that. We admit where we are as sinners. We also look uh, earnestly to the cross of Christ, that our sin has been judged and that we, uh, <clears throat> consequently, will not be. And so I ask you, God, would you, would you look on us with favor? Uh, would you pour out your spirit on us the way that you did in scripture to your people so many times? The way that you've done even in church history, Lord? in these wonderful, wonderful times of, of gracious renewal of the people of God and of many who were slaves to sin. God, we, we beg you, oh, we beg you, would you please pour out your spirit on us now? We long, we long to be filled and controlled by you. We long for your spirit to come upon us. Uh, we long for you to come and do in three minutes what we can't do in 50 years. We long for you to accomplish discipleship in this church and in this city. We long 
that God would be revealed and that people who are drowning in heart ignorance, absolute spiritual darkness would come to life and would see the supreme value of the creator. God, we, we, we throw ourselves before you. We are hopeless and helpless in ourselves. God, we want to leave, leave this building after this, this lovely time of worship, uh, absolutely refreshed by a clear vision of God. Uh, we don't see you with our eyes yet. No one has seen God or can see him. Uh, we, we long for that soul vision, which you give, uh, which you've given us access to by faith in Christ. We long to be refreshed. It can only come from on high. We have no hope of accomplishing anything. God, please take uh, this sort of crumbly, broken offering that we give you. I always think, Lord, of like the, the few loaves and fish and multiply it uh, just, just by utter, relentless, supernatural power. Um, God, we beg you, open, open my mouth, open our ears, that God might be glorified, uh, that you might have the praise and love and cherishing that you deserve. Uh, God, would you, would you murder our sin? Help us kill our sin by the Spirit so that we can live. Uh, put it to death. Crush it down. You, Lord, you're so powerful that if you just come, if you just come, our problems are solved. Uh, so we ask you, Lord, would you please pour out your spirit? Would you please act? We do not have hope except for you. Lord, I, I freely say, um, in front of everybody, I'm very happy to be made a fool of. <clears throat> if, if in doing so, you will be, uh, shown to be glorious. <clears throat> So, Lord, would you help? <clears throat> and we ask for this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. I usually try to wait mid-sermon to start crying. It's more rhetorical that way, but... Well, there you have it. Okay, we're in John 12 here. I want to start by asking you a question. I wonder what you think Jesus came to save you from. What did he come to save you from? That is truth. That's good. Sin. That's good. See, there are places where I would ask this question and I would have this horror as I asked it because there's no telling what I would hear. And then you get in that moment where you don't, you know, and I'd be like, ah, oh, yeah, no, no, don't, don't nod your head. You're making them think that you agree, you know. Um, but in this church, I'm not surprised that, that the right answer is given. I'm going to try, I'm going to suggest something to you. 
I want you to think about it now. I want you to go home and think about it. I want to try and refine the answer a little bit. There's no doubt that hell is what we're saved from. The wrath and anger and horrid displeasure of God is what we're saved from. There's no doubt that sin is what we're saved from. I want to try and refine it a little bit as we, as we, we get into this text. And I'm going to suggest to you it's this. What Jesus came to save us from is this, is, is, the, is the greatest evil in the universe. Is hell the greatest evil in the universe? Think about it. No, it's not. It's not. In fact, hell is holy. God's will is done there. Is sin the greatest evil in the universe? I think the answer is yes, but I'm going to even try and squeeze it a little tighter and say, what do you mean? Like, is it the greatest evil in the universe if I jaywalk? It's holy in the sense that it, it is itself not a horror in the sense, it is a horror in one sense, but in the sense that in hell, God's justice is had and God is revealed to be holy and glorious and worthy as he really is. And so whereas we would look at hell and say, that's the greatest horror there is actually sin is a far greater horror. And, and you, and you'll have to think about that and you, you'll have to weigh that yourself and decide if you think that's right, because this is, this could be something new. So think about it. And if you end up deciding, Hey, I don't think he's right. That's okay. Cause I might get something wrong, but think about it. I think that the worst horror in the universe is probably the fact that people don't value God. I think the worst thing in the universe is not hell. It's the fact that when we, I can look at, I can read these words on this page in this book and I can come to church sometimes and hear the worship music and be a part of it and I can hear a good sermon and my heart sometimes, nothing. Not moved, not touched, not pricked. I might as well have stayed in bed. And it's not the fault of the preacher, and it's not the fault of the church. There's something wrong. And so I want to suggest to you that it's the deepest wrong. It's the worst evil that there is. So the big question I'm trying to press at you right from the beginning before we walk into the text is, what do you value? You could pull out your checkbook, hand it to me, and I could go down the register. I might get a good idea of what you value. Maybe, maybe not. It would be hard to tell. You could let me tag along with you for a week. I see where you go and what you do and what you say, and I might get a pretty good idea of what you value. You could come with me. You could come with me. So that's a question I'm really interested in today. What do you value? What do I value? Okay. Chapter 12, Gospel of John. This is almost the end of Jesus' ministry. He has been preaching the gospel to them and working miracles and displaying the glory of God to them for all these 11 chapters or so. And then chapter 12, at the end, will be the end. 
And Jesus is very displeased with them, and he's about to enact some judicial hiddenness by which we mean that because they will not receive the Son of God and this immensely glorious, rewarding revelation of of God through Jesus, because they say, no, we're not interested, my heart's not moved. When this guy comes, then fine. God says, really? I take the gem out and I set it on the counter and its brilliance lights up the room and the people go, oh, this is boring. God says, really? Really? then I will do the worst thing to you I ever could in judgment. I'll cover it up and I'll take it away. And that's what happens at the end of John 12. He's hidden from them. You have to read the end of John 12. It says some crazy stuff about their punishment and God hiding Jesus and the truth from them. And so that's where we are right in coming into, into chapter 12. It's, it's a high pitch. This this will be near the last things that they hear Jesus say before his upper room discourse of three or four chapters and then finally the arrest and crucifixion and all. And so here we have this thing that happens in chapter 12, verse 1. Read with me. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. Mary therefore took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to steal what was put into it. Jesus therefore said, let her alone, leave her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have always with you, but you don't always have me. I'm going to give you kind of a framework as we walk into the text. You're going to see me ask three questions, ask and answer and dwell on three questions. The first one is, well, they all have to do with value. The first one is, what does Mary value? And the second question is going to be, what does Judas value? And the third one will be, I think, the most interesting of all, actually. In fact, the last time I I gave this point in church, someone got mad at me from the back and, and started challenging me and got out their Bible and was this one will sometimes come as a shock. What does Jesus value? What does Jesus value? Okay. So that's, that's our framework. What do they value? Mary, Judas and Jesus. Okay. So let's walk through the text six days before Passover in verse one, they come to Bethany, which is about two miles off from Jerusalem where Lazarus was whom Jesus raised from the dead. You know that story. And there they make a supper a dinner, a meal for Jesus to, to, to have him over and show hospitality. And Martha's serving, characteristic of her. You, you know the story of Mary, Mary and Martha and Luke. And Lazarus is there reclining with him at the table. You know that they didn't sit at tables like we do, but they have this sort of low table without chairs and their feet are back behind them. And they're sort of laying forward with their arm on the table and really enjoying themselves. Um, so that's what it means that they're reclining. And, and Mary... In verse three, uh, does the, performs the act, which is the center 
uh, of the text. She comes with this pound of costly perfume. Okay, think of this jar or whatever this thing is um, of extremely expensive uh, perfume. She takes it, she breaks it, pours it out on, on Christ, wipes his head, wipes his feet with her hair we find from the other Gospels. Okay, and that's that's the big event. That's the thing that sets off the whole discussion. So we need to talk about this and, and understand it a bit, especially because now we're going to ask the question to begin, what is Mary value? We find out from what Judas says, we find out from the other Gospels that this thing that she's holding is worth around a year's wages. I want you to think for a second about how much you make in a year. You may make minimum wage, and a year's wages is still big. Okay? You might make more than a minimum wage, and now we're really, I mean, we're talking some money. This jar that she's holding is worth a year's worth of your wages. Where did she get it? Well, because of this, some of the writers and commentators think the Lazarus family, Mary and Martha, must have been pretty wealthy. They must have had some money to have something like that lying around. That's possible. It's also possible that this was a precious family heirloom passed down from generations, okay? I mean, from, you know, great, 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 great grandma, First, you know, got this and passed it down. I mean, so it'd be extremely precious. And so I'm going to show you, highlight three bits here to show you what Mary values. The first thing is that in the event that this is a family heirloom, what would you think? You go to a party like this and your brother or sister brings out the most precious thing that your family has treasured for four or five generations. I mean, you, you put it on a, on an altar, you know, you have a shrine to it in your house. Great, 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 great grandma. So-and-so got this forest forever ago. And it means so much. It's the last thing we have of her. And your sister smashes the neck and pours it all out on Jesus. And it's gone. Takes a few minutes. And this thing from five, six generations goes gone. I think you might be very uncomfortable with that. I think you could be furious, say if you're Lazarus or Martha, right? You see, Mary, there's something in the room that Mary values a whole lot more than family heirlooms and family and traditions. The second thing is that the thing costs a year's wages, (laughs) Um, most of us don't have a year's wages sitting in our bank account right now. Do you get the, the impression from what Mary does that apparently there's something in the room she values more than money? I mean, she, what could she have bought with a year's wages? It's more like, what couldn't she have bought with a year's wages? Mary, are you crazy? So... There's something in the room that Mary values a whole lot more than money. It's not just that. There's something in the text um, that, well, and maybe it doesn't come out real clear in this text, but in the other Gospels where, uh, oh no, it does, wiped, her, wiped his feet with her hair. That's not immediately obvious. In this room, I see a number of women whose hair is down. And that's great. That's fine. In this culture, no problem with that. In this one, 
you don't let your hair down unless maybe you're an immoral woman or unless you're losing your mind. They keep the hair up. They keep it a certain way to express that this is a woman of dignity and respect. This isn't a woman who walks the streets late at night. This is a respectable, godly Jewish woman. Some of the commentators will say her letting her hair down like this and wiping his feet with it was would have been scandalously embarrassing. So I have a third thing. Mary does not seem to value all that much, and it's her own dignity and self-respect. And I don't mean that in a negative way, like she's some sort of loose woman. That's not what we're saying. She's a godly woman. She believes in Christ. She's a faithful Jewess. But there's something in the room that Mary values a whole lot more than her own self-respect and dignity. You remember David coming in when they bring the ark in? Stripping down to his underclothes, which is a total no-no, and dancing like a maniac before the ark as it comes in. And then his wife Michael says, Oh, how the Lord, or how the king displayed himself before all the young maidens today. How you made a fool of yourself, you idiot. And he says, I did it before the Lord. And just so you know, I'll become even more despised for him. I'll, I'll sacrifice my dignity in even more grandeur than this. Okay. This is kind of, that's kind of like Mary sacrificing a lot of money, sacrificing possibly a family heirloom, sacrificing her dignity. There's something in the room that she thinks is more valuable than all that stuff. So you know what Mary values. What is it? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. She values Jesus above all. Okay. Next question. What does Judas value? Verse four. Judas, one of the disciples, he's intent, he's already intending to betray him. Judas has already had enough. Whatever his problem is, we'll see a little bit, bit of it here. We don't quite know the full bit. He's already getting ready to hand Jesus over. He says, that was absolutely inappropriate. Don't you know there are people hungry on the streets of Rancho Cordova? In Sacramento? What is the matter with you? How dare you lavishly waste this stuff on this guy. I mean, I know he's, you know, he's impressive, right? He works miracles and speaks words that no one's ever heard before in the history of the world. But there are poor people out there and we got to get out there and help them, guys. Now, I find this point just wonderful because if you're not aware of it, there has been, well, it, it's not new, but especially the, in, in, say, the last 10 years, I don't know. I'm not an expert in it, but I know enough to say that there's been an upsurge in certain areas of the church concerned very much for social justice, saying, why do we spend time worshiping in a church? Let's just go out and feed the hungry. And every time I hear one of these guys push this thing again, I think of that. I go, yeah, that's what Judas would say. (laughs) Might not want to be in that kind of company. Might be a bad idea. But so Judas objects. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. That could have been sold for a year's wages and given to the poor. That was wrong. We find out from the other Gospels that Judas is sort of leading the other disciples into saying the same thing. They're all kind of mad at her, indignant that she would waste. That's really key in this whole thing. That she would waste all of that on Jesus. And John lets us in on a little secret here in verse 6. Judas said that not because he cared about the poor, but because he is a thief. Somehow Judas found himself the treasurer of the group. 
I think that's an interesting point already, but we won't pursue it today. Somehow Judas finds himself the treasurer of the group, and he likes that spot because when nobody's looking, he helps himself to the, the money box, to the purse. That's what Judas is really concerned about. He could have taken that thing, sold it for some money, and then taken some out of it when nobody was looking. He doesn't care about poor people. You ever read Zechariah? It's an obscure book. I still read it and go, okay. What was the price that Judas ends up selling Jesus for? Slave's price, 30 pieces of silver, right? We know from the other Gospels that it is right after this that Judas goes and finds a way with the, the, the leaders to betray Jesus. Kind of get the impression that, ooh, ooh, something here kind of offended Judas and made him mad. He'd had enough after this. Zechariah, there's this really strange bit. It's very hard to understand exactly what's being said, but you have Zechariah sort of shepherding the wicked people of Israel or something, and then them rejecting him, and them rejecting him is sort of re- like rejecting God. It's very, it's very bizarre, but there's this comment that's made in it where Zechariah says, give me my, my wages for shepherding you, or else forget it. And so they weigh out to him 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord speaks. And he says, take that, take that lovely, take that, we think it's real sarcastic, take that lordly price they valued me at and throw it into the field. Really an, really an interesting, kind of intense text. It's, it's, it's as if it's saying that they set a value on God. And the value was paltry. Nothing. Unimpressive. It'd be like if one of you was driving a, a $50,000 car out there and said, whew, that's a nice car. I'll give you 20 bucks for it. You know, it's, it's insulting, right? It's like, do you not know the value of this thing? Are you crazy? What's it? That seems to be a prediction of this. God says, oh yeah, 30 pieces of silver. Ooh, that's an impressive price that you're ready to sell me at. Take it and throw it away. Flush it down the toilet. God doesn't like being undervalued. Neither do you. And I sure don't. I will suggest to you that Judas has got a lot of problems, no doubt. I wonder if the worst one is a bad eye for value. He's got Jesus Christ sitting in front of him. He'd rather get the money. That's why some have called sin sort of suicidal psychosis. What is with this person? You've got a person who has a banquet table laid out, the Thanksgiving banquet steaming fresh out of the oven. You, you get within a hundred miles of this thing. You can smell it. It's so delicious. makes your mouth water. And you go out and eat the dog food. You say, yeah, that's crazy. Right. That's called the sin you did this morning. <laughs> that's called the sin in my heart as I woke up this morning. And had to start fighting. What's wrong with me? Something. Something big. So what does Judas value? Money. What money can get. Security. And you know, that's not to be, be too hard on Judas, right? He's gotta worry about the future like the rest of us. He's concerned for retirement. Look, I mean, you know, maybe he has a wife and kids. We don't know. He might. 
He wants him to be okay. Is that evil? Is that wrong? I'm trying to push you here a little bit. Because of course it's not wrong to save up for retirement and take care of your wife and kids. You'd be sinning if you didn't. But do you see how quick we cross the line? Do you see how quick we mask sin with noble motives? I'm just trying to take care of my own. That's why every decision I make proves that I value money more than Jesus. I'm just trying to provide for, I'm just trying to be responsible. Oh, I do it all the time. I do it all the time. Okay. Mary values Jesus. Judas values money and this world. Lastly, and most interesting, I think, what does Jesus value? Verse 7, Jesus therefore said, let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. You've always got poor people with you. You don't always have me. I don't know if you guys take an offering in this church. Um, let's pretend like you do. Let's pretend like the first thing in some churches say, the first thing, you know, one of the first things they do when you come and you have a few songs and they pass the plate around and you put somebody in the offering. Normal, you know, nothing wrong with it necessarily. But let's say that you guys did that this morning when we walked in. The first thing you did was took an offering. And as soon as I got up here, I said, okay, guys, um, I noticed you took the offering. I see the plate right here, stacked the money. I, I, I understood that this was a benevolence offering. It was a special offering today to give to the poor. I just want you to know, I mean, you've got the poor with you always. Me, you're only seeing this weekend. I think that you should go ahead and redub, you know, re, reassign that, the, the Dave Wagner fund. What do you think? I mean, I'm only here one, one day. You always have the poor. What would you think if a guest speaker said something like that? What's that? <laughs> I know, I know, but actually, and that's what's funny, I almost said something that would have been offensive, and so I'm not gonna say, I don't know if it would have offended you, but it would have offended some other certain churches, but I won't say it. Um, if I heard it, I'd think he's crazy. I'd walk up and be like, alright, tell me real fast, what you just said is, you think you are personally more important than people out there hungry on the street. That's what you think. You got a car, you got a house, you're doing fine, and you think you're more important than poor people's needs. Is that what you think? I'd say, you're out of your mind. You're nuts. I know a good counselor. I'll get you his card. Who does this guy think he is? To say, nah, I got the poor with you always. I lo- nothing. Nothing's more enjoyable to me than to talk to an unbeliever who's been taught that actually the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus is God. Jesus was nothing like that. He was just a traveling sort of philosopher, you know, magician guy. And he never said he was God. He never exalted himself. That's what the later church did. Nothing is more enjoyable than that. Because I love to take him to stuff like this. He said he was more important than the poor. One time his disciples were doing something on Sabbath that the Pharisees said was not okay. And he said... Do you know who I am? I'm the Lord of Sabbath. So, for example, let's say that we take communion a little bit here, and we do it in a way that I think is not quite the right way. So I stand and go, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You can't do it like that. And Brian says, what are you talking about? It says right here in Scripture. I go, no, no, I'm the Lord of communion. I'm the Lord of the Lord's Supper. That's what it would be like. This guy is crazy. Somebody call the police, you know, before he starts shooting. Jesus says it, and I could give you lots more, 